The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WNKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WNKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Bina Jones-Cox. This is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, we're putting folks just like you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. And 1,212 of you have now joined Real Life Real Estate's Facebook fan page, where you can get information about the upcoming shows, suggest topics and help me in my never-ending quest to get more fans than bacon which is sort of falling apart since bacon has like millions and millions and millions of fans now but we're still we we never quit trying we just we just we just never give up on that beat bacon thing yeah i know but we keep trying anyway you can join our Facebook fan page by first joining Facebook if you're not already a member and then going to searching real life real estate investing or just just going to real life real estate radio.com again we appreciate your fandom as well as your show suggestions and uh, in return of course give you over 100 free downloads of the program for those of you who keep asking about those yes they are available and that's how you get them that's real life real estate radio.com. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meets tomorrow evening. That is uh, Thursday. And uh, it meets at the usual location at the Community Action Center at Jordan Crossing, corner of Seymour Avenue and Reading Road. Our main speaker is John Heyer, who is a CPA and tax attorney and who will be addressing issues around bookkeeping, taxes, and asset protection, and is also joining me by phone today as my guest. John, welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Hi, Vina. Thanks for having me. Uh, Glad to have you back here, John, because asset protection and taxes are always like the hot topic. People always want to ask me these complicated questions about LLCs and trusts and being a dealer and all of these things. And... uh, I always say, gosh, I'm not an attorney, but here's the best I can do for you. And today we actually have the attorney. So this would be a great day for those folks with those questions to give us a call with them at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Or you can email questions at askvina at gmail.com. Askvina, that's A-S-K-V as in Victor, E-N-A, at gmail.com. We are looking forward to helping you deal with your own questions about this sometimes confusing topic. And, of course, John will be at the RIA of Greater Cincinnati meeting tomorrow night at 730, which is open to the public. So if you want to get even more, be sure and attend that meeting. Uh, now, John, I wanted to I wanted to start with, because I know this is sort of a big beef of yours, that there, there's, a, there's an awful lot of um, stuff being sold as education to real estate investors 
about asset protection and about taxes, and some of it seems to leave people more confused than they were when they started. And there are just these massive misconceptions that people have about the whole entity thing, the whole asset protection thing. What are some of the most common questions you get that that just show that, that people just aren't getting it? I would say my, my first issue is on asset protection. Everybody asks about entities and nothing else. So I get lots of questions on LLCs, corporations, and trusts. And those are relevant, and those questions are important. But that's really only one, maybe 20%, one piece of the, uh, the asset protection battle. Very few investors focus, at least until we get to them, focus on what gets you sued, how to not get sued, how to win if you do get sued, how to settle if you don't want to pay for the whole lawsuit and settle at pennies on the dollar. I often use the analogy for asset protection of an LLC to term life insurance. You should get it because if the worst happens, you want to be prepared. You should also do your best to not have to use it. (laughs) And so if if investors would just take maybe 60 or 70% of the time they spend on complicated asset protection devices and put that time into properly drafting contracts, knowing what gets them sued and how to avoid it and so on, I think they'd be doing themselves a real service. Probably my number one beef. The people who teach asset protection, and I put the term in quotes, the people who teach it are oftentimes not lawyers, or if they're lawyers, they're not practicing lawyers, which means you're being taught by a theorist. And that's a dangerous thing with the law. I think you can tell me from personal experience that the law is much more than what is just on the books. It's the way it's interpreted in court. It's the sorts of settlements and procedures judges put forth. And there are customs that that are attached to it. And so it's very important that when you're taking advice from somebody on on any subject, but something like asset protection, you know that they're hands-on and not just reading the case law. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> you're also not a big fan of some of the, uh, oh, let's call it fancy stuff that is recommended by um, some of the, dare I call them gurus out there speaking about uh, asset protection, where it's just layer after layer after it's it's every house in its own separate land trust, and every land trust has a different LLC as the beneficiary, and the actual owner of the LLC is a corporation, and 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 this whole idea that if you make things complicated enough, n- nobody will ever get to you. You know, at some size level, that might be appropriate if you're Donald Trump or someone like that. You can afford that kind of structure and that structure might actually be enforced. For the small mom-and-pop investor, the first thing I'd say is if you try to get too complicated on that, you're probably going to see it backfire. What I have found, and we'll talk about this both Thursday and when I return to Cincinnati for the the Saturday day-long workshop, if you try to convert, for example, a limited liability company into a no-liability company, it's going to backfire, and you're going to get hurt. The object of the law is to limit the amount of damage you can take. A lot of the gurus complicate things and attempt to make it so that no matter what happens, you never have to pay a nickel. And in the real world, it just doesn't work that way. In fact, it oftentimes will upset a judge. Excuse me. (coughs) It'll oftentimes upset a judge to the point where they'll pierce an entity, meaning ignore your corporate shield, 
because you tried to get away with too much. And I'll give an example Thursday of a case in Massachusetts where somebody owned 40 taxi cabs, each in its own LLC, and how that ended up. A lot of people suggest doing the same thing with real estate. What's more, you, you and I know entrepreneurs, and especially real estate entrepreneurs, quite well. They're not going to sit in the back room four hours a day maintaining this horribly complicated structure. It's just not going to happen. So uh, from a number of angles, I, I really prefer simplicity. And as your business grows, then you grow into complexity. When you have a lot more assets to protect and you have a lot more income to pay people like me, then we start to add to the structure, but only as, as you can afford the growth and only as the growth makes sense. I, I always find it amusing when the sellers, the Nevada people in particular, say, well, you know, shouldn't you be like the rich? And my answer is, well, no, I can't afford it. I shouldn't have the same structure as rich people because I have different needs and I have different resources. Now, as I become wealthy, yeah, we're going to start to steal a page from Donald Trump's book. But until then, you can't pay the freight, and it probably won't do for you what it does do for Donald Trump. So big, big issue. I have a lot of misinformation out there over complexity of entities and overcharging for those entities, because it's, it's coincidental if I'm a guru and I'm setting up six entities instead of one, I get to charge six times the fee. <laughs> so simplicity and paying attention to lawsuit avoidance, both important things. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to answer your questions at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or via askvina at gmail.com. Hey kids, have you checked out Vina's website yet at realliferealestate.com? I don't care that you're driving. Learn to multitask. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is John Heyer, a an attorney and CPA who is very, very smart about asset protection and tax type issues, which I'm not necessarily. So if you've been holding on to some questions on those topics, give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send us an email. Just go to askbina at gmail.com and we will make sure that uh, we get those answered as best we possibly can. Now, John, you, you mentioned a, a little bit earlier that with your clients, you, you really want to focus on uh, uh, lawsuit avoidance once the basic asset protection stuff is set up and in place. And you mentioned that, that like proper drafting of contracts is one of the ways to avoid misunderstandings and lawsuits. Are there, are there other things that you recommend to people to just avoid the whole situation to begin with? You know, it's funny. Some of it's I, I would say common sense, but perhaps not. Uh, rule one, don't do business where people hate you. <laughs> uh, for example, there are some jurisdictions where the judges just hate landlords. If I were to do business in a place like that, I would pay even less for a property than I normally do. I need to be compensated for the lawyer's fees and the hassle and the time it takes to evict. If I'm, a good example in my mind would be Cuyahoga County. I think they're just awful in terms of some of the rulings they make. And as a result, if I were to buy properties up there, I would pay even less than I do in Indiana or Columbus, where I traditionally buy. Second, be nice to people. Winston Churchill had a great quote. He said, be polite, always be polite. Even if you must kill a man, 
be polite. And the point is this. You can say unpleasant things in a pleasant way. A lot of people sue or cause trouble because they're angry and they're unhappy. And so uh, I think Shakespeare said something to the effect of, kill them with the milk of human kindness. Smile and be polite. Don't raise your voice. Be firm. Don't back off. But there's no point of getting into a shouting match or a war. One thing I found that helps is my tenants don't know I'm the owner of the properties. They just think I'm some schlep manager with, a lot, with fairly little power. And that helps avoid conversations I don't want to have. Uh, when we're drafting contracts, I really focus on full disclosure. I think we have to remember that, especially when we're dealing with complicated transactions or things that we might think are simple. If I talk to you, Vina, about subject to or lease options or short sales, you know what all that means. And sometimes I think we assume that everyone else understands it. And for most people, they don't. It's magic. It's complicated. And so we have to be very careful in our contracts to explain in clear, plain English what's happening and what the benefits are and also what the risks are and be very, very clear. In fact, I want to be so clear that if somebody claims they didn't understand what they were getting into, and everybody does this when they decide that they don't want to pay us rent or whatnot, they claim that they don't understand the big mean investor took advantage of them. I want my contract and my disclosures to be so blunt and so direct that if in front of a jury they were to claim they didn't understand, the jury would literally burst out laughing after having read the contract. And I, I've, I have a few phrases that I use in my contracts that I'll test on the RIA group, and I'll bet you they chuckle when they hear someone attempt to deny that they understood what the phrase said. <laughs> so... Be simple in the contracts, lay it all out, be nice to people, don't do business where people hate you. And if you insist on doing that, have a fund for the lawyer so that when the people who hate you come after you, you can pay the lawyer to fend them off. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> now, having having said that, you, 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 we don't want to have people hear that if you do all those things, you're never going to get sued. Because there are people who will sue you because you have money and they don't, or because you have insurance and that's what they do is sue people with insurance to get settlements. And there's just all sorts of crazy things that go on with the world right now. And, you know, when we're landlords or dealing in real estate, that's a big thing to a lot of people and does rouse emotions, even if uh, we are being polite and, and, and fair and kind and so on. So it's not that asset protection is instead of all this stuff. It's in addition to I agree. all this stuff. And so then, of course, the next question that always comes up is, well, well, well what entity? I heard that I should get a family limited partnership and a Nevada corporation, and then I'd be fine. I know that we have to really deal with people on a, on a case-by-case basis, but in general, there are certain entities that, that do certain things best. Yeah, yeah, and, and I sympathize with your comment, first of all, that nothing's 100%. I can give you a Kevlar helmet, and I can give you a bulletproof vest, and I can give you all sorts of body armor, but if someone shoots you in the face, you're still going to die. So we can reduce the chances dramatically of a bad result, but we can never completely eliminate it. People are too unpredictable and too irrational for that to happen. In terms of choosing the, t the type of entity, it's important to understand I'm giving generalizations. If you try this at home on your own based on what I'm about to say, 
you're going to mess it up, and you don't get to come sue me for that, because I warned you not to do that. <laughs> Some of the generalizations would be, um, in most states, I would use a limited liability company, an LLC, for rental properties, and that would include most lease option properties, particularly if you have a pretty low exercise rate on those lease options, and they look and act like rentals. We like LLCs for rentals, and the reason is LLCs pass good tax things through, but they still provide asset protection, where if you put rentals into a corporation in particular, the pass-through doesn't always occur. A good example is an S-corporation does not always pass losses from a rental unit through to your 1040, so you don't end up getting the tax savings. So an S-corporation for rentals is really an inferior choice. Limited partnerships for rentals don't do much for me because they're as good as LLCs in terms of passing through, but they're more expensive and more complicated. LLCs do the same thing for rentals, but simpler. For flips, it's a little bit harder to generalize. Actually, it's a lot harder to generalize. Most of the time, I would ask somebody for tax returns, uh, income statements, a projection of what they think they're going to do in the future, how much they'll make, how they're going to make it, what their spouse makes, lots of questions. Usually it's one of three results. I'd say for most people who have, they're starting off with flips and it's a simple business, meaning they run it or they run it with their spouse, I tend to suggest an S corporation because it reduces social security taxes on the flips. If you have a large flipping operation or you have partners, we tend to gravitate towards a limited partnership. They're more flexible, they still save you social security taxes, but they're more complicated than S corporations to run. And in a few isolated instances, we'll recommend C corporations. C corporations are really the exception to the rule, and we'll talk about why they're that exception at the meeting, and I'll give you three major instances where a C corporation makes sense. I do think that's gonna to start to change. If the tax code changes in the direction I think it will, meaning I think taxes are going to go up, then C corporations will start to become more useful as they traditionally used to be back in the 70s when tax rates were much higher than they are now. So I can see some room for change on that, but probably the most oversold entity, the one that gets people in the most trouble, would be a C corporation. I, I simply think that they're grossly oversold Anyone who tells you you need a C corporation without having first seen your tax returns and knowing a lot about your financial life is a dangerous fool, and you should run from them really quickly. I have at least one friend who had a three-year-long battle with the IRS that ended in her having to get a private letter ruling because uh, uh, her accountant um, recommended the C corporation for a company that was holding rental properties. Oh, and that's malpractice. I've seen <laughs> articles, law journal articles, in respected conservative publications that say, if you recommend a C corporation for rentals, you've almost certainly committed malpractice. That's how wrong that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, the IRS was telling her she couldn't take her $150,000 plus per year in um, depreciation because she didn't have that much profit in the C corporation. So, uh, yeah, that's a... Uh, I, I totally agree with you and, and we'll go further and say that just because your attorney who helped you draw up your will or complete your divorce tells you that he understands what entities are and which ones you should have does not necessarily make it so and that in general a specialist 
is probably the right person to go to for this sort of thing? Usually you talk to both a lawyer and an accountant because there are legal and tax implications. Lawyers don't tend to know tax. Accountants don't tend to know the law. And so you go to someone who's both or you consult the two separately and have them talk. Uh, but it's, it's not a decision I would make in isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's John Heyer, tax attorney and CPA, here to answer all of your uh, legal and accounting questions, or at least all of them within reason. Our numbers, though, to ask the questions are 772-9658, or if you're outside the greater Cincinnati area, 877-772-9658, or you can send us an email by going to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking asset protections and the protection and the very closely related topic of tax savings today with John Heyer, who is nationally known for his expertise in dealing with entities and taxes for real estate investors. We can take any question that you have for John at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Make those phones ring, ladies and gentlemen, because when John is off the air this afternoon, I'm not going to be answering any asset protection questions. That's my, that's, I'm, I'm just putting my put down. Next time I get an asset protection question, I'm going to say, how come you didn't call when John was on the air? You can also send an email to askvena at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V-E-N-A at gmail.com. Uh, we do have a question here from JC via email. It says, uh, what would you look for in hiring a bookkeeper for your real estate business? A bookkeeper being a totally different person, of course, than your CPA. It's an important question because the bookkeeping underlies the business itself. It's an information system. It underlies your taxes. And it's important for asset protection. It's one of the required things to do to make a company real. So it's a good question. couple of things. Uh, as, as I'll mention later when I'm in Cincinnati, we put out a fairly inexpensive product teaching people how to use QuickBooks for real estate. What I have had clients do is hand that course to college interns, an accounting intern, maybe a sophomore or a junior, and pay them somewhere between 7 to $10 an hour to do it. Uh, If you can't do that for some reason, I would find a bookkeeper who has demonstrated familiarity with real estate. In other words, you don't want to have to train them if you can avoid it. Uh, So word of mouth and referrals from other investors who are pleased with their bookkeeper. And better yet, word of mouth from tax preparers who've seen the bookkeeper's work and think they've done a good job because they would definitely be in a position to know. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, may I add to that, um, and this isn't the voice of experience at all, okay, that the bigger your business gets and the more complicated it gets with the more deal, different kinds of deals you're trying to do, the more of a crisis it becomes if your bookkeeper does not know how to correctly keep the books. (laughs) And uh, uh, you may have to level up as time goes by from that $6 an hour intern to someone who really and truly has had experience in the real estate realm because it just gets unbelievably complex when you have multiple lenders, multiple partners, multiple deals and multiple different entities. Um, Marty from Seattle 
says, what are some problems with a single member LLC and are there any ways to get around them? That could be for a very long Q&A session. <laughs> I mean, each entity has its own set of advantages and disadvantages. Probably the biggest problem with a single member LLC is that courts have, especially over on the West Coast, courts have a tendency to not respect small entities, meaning single-member owned or husband and wife owned. They tend to treat them as just this fig leaf. And in order to get the court's respect, I think you have to be absolutely meticulous about corporate formalities, things like having resolutions and annual meetings where you take minutes, about having bank accounts just for the entity, about not taking that company's money and mixing it with other companies' money, which is the, the number one way to kill an LLC or a corporation, to have a court just ignore it would be to commingle money in that manner. I don't know that there's a perfect way around it. Uh, it's been suggested that you set up an entity with a partner and the courts will give that more respect. The problem is the partner really has to have some substance. If you set up an entity that's 99% yourself and 1% some partner who's there to give it credibility, I think most courts are smart enough to look through that and say, look, that's just a straw man, that's just a fig leaf, we're really not going to respect it. And if you have a substantial partner, let's say a 20 or 30% partner, who's there to help you with asset protection, I would say having the partner is a much bigger danger and a much bigger hassle than whatever asset protection you lost by, by having a single-member entity. So for small businesses, I'm a fan of single-member entities. The best solution we've got to the fact that courts oftentimes don't give them quite so much respect is to demand that respect by being meticulous about treating it like a real company and doing all the things the court would expect a real company to do. So it's a good question because there, there is a tension there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, oh, thought that was another question, but it is not. So I will once again give out the phone numbers and we will move on with our topic here. 877-772-9658 or 772-9658 if you'd like to give us a call with any questions regarding asset protection, entities, trusts, LLCs, limited partnerships. Uh, say the word Nevada Corporation and see what happens in front of John. Uh, you can call us. You can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com or make the phone ring at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Um, okay, John, I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk a- about some, some tax issues that are big deals to real estate investors. And these things, as you mentioned before, are just incredibly kind of interlaced i mean you don't <laughs> part of part of the reason that you that you select a particular entity is its tax effect on your life and your business and one of the things that i've been hearing about gosh ever since i got started in real estate 20 years ago was dealer status and so much energy and 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 effort and talk is put into this whole idea of avoiding dealer status can you quickly explain what that is and then tell us what you think about it? Okay. There are two primary types of real estate investor from a tax standpoint. There are investors who hold properties for income or appreciation. This is your classic landlord. 
And then there are people who acquire properties with the intent to resell them. There are people who also do both, and we'll talk about that in a second. The tax treatment of the investor, the buy-and-hold guy, is more favorable than that of the guy who buys and sells. The guy who buys and sells real estate is essentially treated the same as the guy who buys and sells anything else. It could be widgets or toothpaste or whatever. That's still not bad. It's better than being a W-2. But a lot of people who are borderline, it's not clear which way they go. Are they dealers or are they investors? Are going to try and push it over into the investor side. With that said, I'd say that's exceptional. In most cases, it's pretty clear which way you go. Some people go both ways, in which case they simply have to segregate each business. For example, I buy mobile home parks and hold them for the rental income. That's an investment. And I sell the trailers in the parks. I never, ever rent them. So those are clearly dealer property, and I treat each one differently. I think a lot more is made of dealer status than needs to be. Usually it's pretty clear that you're a dealer or you're not, and then we just try and plan around it if you are. For example, using a good entity for a dealer, like I mentioned before on flipping an S-corporation, a limited partnership, or a C-corporation, depending on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Big mouthful. <laughs> but but uh, all this uh, oh my goodness endless talk about uh, avoid being a dealer by not checking the box that says you're a dealer you just just don't think that that you just you know if you're a dealer say you are and deal with it if you're a dealer you're a dealer and you plan around it if you're not a dealer don't worry about it and if you're borderline which is fairly rare in practice I mean. People like to write about the dealer status issue because it's scary, and they can offer a quote-unquote solution to the dealer problem. For most people, again, if you're buying and selling frequently, you probably have a dealer issue, and we just need to plan on it's a problem, and we do the best we can to reduce the taxes and especially make sure that that dealer status not spread to other issues. When people say never admit that you're a dealer, my response is, what if you are? In other words, the the worst thing I think you could do is go to the IRS with the argument that I'm not a dealer, but then when you get audited, it's painfully clear that you are a dealer, that you don't really have a good argument for not being one. So what's the result? You've blown your credibility. In the audit, the agent is just going to be itching, just looking for ways to hammer you because now they don't trust you. So I'm all for being aggressive. If we're in a borderline situation, there are things we can do to massage it to make it less likely that the that dealer status applies. But if you're clearly in that boat, admit it and plan around it as best you can. Otherwise, I think you're you're really risking an ugly ugly result when the IRS gets to your return. I've seen it time and time again where, where people make ridiculously aggressive arguments on their return that the IRS just shellacks them and it just doesn't have to be that way. I want to be aggressive but intelligently so that I have a very good argument if I'm caught. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, John, let's go ahead and uh, uh, get to one of our callers, Anne, who's calling on line one from Chicago. Anne, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. How are you? Good, Anne. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Um, yeah, actually, I have a question. Um, hi, John. Um, yeah. My question, and, and maybe you don't want to cover this because you said you were going to talk about it at the Cincinnati RIA meeting, and since I'm not... In Cincinnati, I was hoping you might just briefly be able to explain the three reasons to have a C corporation because that is unfortunately what we have, and it, it has been kind of a nightmare with all the paperwork. And, you know, would you mind covering that just briefly? 
without going in the huge detail, a C corporation makes sense if you're in a high income tax bracket. Okay. Uh, by high, I, I would say at least 30%. If you're in a 30% or higher marginal tax bracket, you're able to have some of your income taxed at 15, 1.5% in the C corporation, right. and that would make having it worthwhile. Second, right. if you want to put six-figure sums, $100,000 plus, into a pension plan with a tax deduction, usually that tends to work if you're 45 years or older because there are actuarial calculations that are somewhat age-driven. So if you want to put $100,000 or more per year into a pension plan, a C-corporation might be a good thing for you. And last, and in fact least, uh, the least common justifiable reason to have a C-corporation, if you have very heavy out-of-pocket medical expenses, we're talking Uh $15,000, $20,000 a year, a C corporation might make sense because oftentimes you can deduct medical expenses more favorably with a C corporation, but it only makes sense if they're pretty heavy. If you're mm-hmm. spending five or six or seven thousand a year on medical, not including the cost of insurance, we're talking out of pocket, right. then the C corp probably doesn't make sense. If one of those three things does not apply, mm-hmm. the other benefits of a C corporation, because it's really a pretty short list of things that are C corporation exclusive. A lot of people think that to write off your car, for example, you need a C corporation. And that's not true. You can write off your car any number of different ways. Mm-hmm. The list of C corporation exclusive tax breaks is actually pretty short, and I just gave you the big ones that would justify the cost. If none of that applies to you, mm-hmm. the C corporation is very likely costing you more money than it's saving you. And that's creating a lot of headache too in terms of just. I know that for sure. <laughs> now the fifteen to twenty thousand per year medical expenses would be like if you had more than one person, you know, um, owning the corporation. Just the the sum total of everybody would be. No, I would say per family. Per family, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You bet. Take care. You too. Bye bye. And thank you so much for your call, Anne. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you have a specific question like Anne did, don't wait for me to ask it because I can't read your mind. Give us a call at 772-9658 or toll free at 877-772-9658 or send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing talking today to John Heyer about asset protection and tax issues. And he should know he's an attorney and a CPA and will be visiting Cincinnati RIA tomorrow evening for the main meeting. In case you're curious about what the early meeting is for beginners, that'd be me. And the topic is buying properties to hold some of the basic strategies and ways to choose the right property and do the right things when you're, buying so that you don't mess that up. That's at six o'clock. John is on at seven thirty, and he's coming all the way down from Columbus to uh, be with us tomorrow night. And then we'll be back in a couple of weeks, uh, a week from Saturday to uh, do an all day session for Cincinnati RIA. So that is open to the public. You can get more information at Cincinnati or at eight five nine two nine two seven three four two. That's eight five nine two nine two R E I A. We're taking your questions now for the next 10 minutes before we're off the air at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. Just got one from Frank in uh, Burbank who says, why can't you do these webinars at 
five o'clock California time. And my response to that was because this isn't a webinar. It's a live radio show and they don't let me do it twice a day for the Californians. But um, I, I appreciate that, you know, you're sitting in your car thinking, gosh, I really wish I could listen to real life real estate. And here I am not in Cincinnati. That's okay. You can go to realliferealestateradio.com and download the podcasts each week. Uh, we got a question from Robert in Hudson, Ohio, who says, um, please indulge my obsessive compulsive disorder by asking the same question I asked the last asset protection attorney who was on your show. I'm not kidding. He wrote this. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Is inserting the statement... All members are allowed to incur unreimbursed expenses into the operating agreement of my LLC, risking having my corporate veil pierced in a lawsuit. Examples of unreimbursed business expenses would include buying building supplies with my own personal funds, not from my business checking account or business credit card, and claiming that cost as a business expense. A couple of angles on that. First of all, from a tax standpoint, if you're going to do that, I, I don't like it. But if you must do that, from a tax standpoint, draw up a reimbursement form, just as if you worked for IBM or some other company you presumably don't own. If you spent money on behalf of the company as an employee of the company, you would ask for reimbursement, and you would keep track of it with receipts and the like. I, I really do prefer to see, both from a tax and an asset protection standpoint, expenses be incurred at the company level. Uh, the, re the, the reimbursement scheme is not necessarily going to result in a piercing of the veil for certain, but it might be one factor a court looks at where if you were borderline, that little tiny shove could push you over the edge. Uh, I frankly don't see a good reason not to go set up a checking account or a credit card or a debit card and use that in the company's name to pay all of the expenses. And if that's a financial burden, some people are thinking, oh, my God, I could never do that you may not need an entity. You may not have sufficient assets to protect. Uh, there is a certain amount of hassle involved with entities. So I don't think that including a statement in the operating agreement that you're allowed to have the company reimburse you for expenses or that you can pay for expenses personally will result in a piercing of the veil or the company being disregarded. I don't think that's poison or fatal. But I do think it's a somewhat sloppy practice, and if there's any way to avoid it, both from an, really from an accounting, from a tax, and from an asset protection standpoint, I really would want to see you not do that. Okay. So, Robert, there you go. You, you heard the man. Whether you take his advice or not, that's up to you, of course. Uh, we got time for one or two more questions. If you give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send us an email at askvina at gmail.com, uh, be aware the internet connection here at the station is not the world's fastest. So uh, sending questions toward the end of the show often results in me getting them when the show's over. So the sooner the better on those questions. Now, John, uh, again, shifting back to the tax uh, issues around being a real estate investor, really any small business person, it only takes you the, your first year in business to realize that your, your very, very, very biggest expense is taxes. And it really, it really behooves us to do some planning and take the deductions we can take and so on. Are there certain 
good tax practices that would lower our taxes or d- deductions that you commonly see real estate investors and landlords just missing? You know, there's no silver bullet. It's pretty rare that there's one deduction that makes a massive difference. It happens, but usually it's paying attention to all the deductions and running things in a consistent business-like manner. I would say having the attitude of, if it relates to the business in any possible way, I'm going to write it off and let my accountant tell me no when it comes time to file, or hopefully you talk to the accountant before filing the tax return, is a good start. Uh, it's a lot easier than picking through somebody's personal expenses, trying to make them into a business expense. It's a lot easier, in other words, to have somebody simply assume a lot of things are business expenses and let the accountant rein them in somewhat. But, but it's a detailed game. It's things like when you go on a trip to a seminar, go somewhere nice, drive so that your family can go with you, and you can write off the miles if it's truly a business event, even though your family's in the car, so you basically turn it into a vacation. It is attention to detail with accounting. Most investors do a decent job of knowing what they're allowed to write off and what they're not allowed to write off. They'll go pick up a book in a bookstore, talk to their accountant, and they have a pretty good idea what they can get away with. Where they fall down is they don't keep track of it. A lot of them will spend money that they don't know they spent because they don't do a good job of tracking it. Or they'll know they spent money, but they don't follow a few simple requirements, such as tracking mileage on an automobile, in order to qualify for the deduction. So I'd say I I can't really think of any deductions that people consistently miss. I can say that most investors, most entrepreneurs for that matter, do a fairly lousy job of recording what they spend on and do a fairly lousy job of going the extra mile on the couple of things like car mileage where you have to do something more than just spend the money. Um, but otherwise, it's, it's a game of details. Just try and write off anything that relates to the business and push it somewhat with your CPA. And it helps to have an accountant or a tax lawyer who is on the aggressive side. Right? If you've got somebody who's very conservative and they're afraid of the IRS, they're oftentimes going to deny deductions that the IRS would have permitted. I've seen that a number of times. When we get new clients, I'll look at their old tax returns, and I'll see that the accountant was even more conservative than the IRS, which takes effort. And there are things that I saw one time, for example, the settlement costs of buying a property are, for the most part, treated as a part of buying the property. So you just add it to the cost of the property. And I saw one accountant say, no, you can never take those as any sort of deduction ever. <laughs> and I actually confronted him on it. I just was amused, and I called him and said, where, where is that in the law? And he got really defensive but would never answer the question. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to annoy people like that. They deserve it. <laughs> so, again, specialists are, are important because uh, I hear that uh, complaint over and over and over again from real estate investors and landlords all over the United States that the the complaint goes, my accountant won't let me write off anything, even things that I am hearing at my RIA group or in seminars or in books are perfectly legitimate deductions. That's about the accountant being too conservative or about just not understanding that part of the law? And the way to do it Because there are times we have to tell people, as much as I like to keep money away from the government, it's a bit of a passion for me. If I can legally and ethically keep them from getting money, I am going to do so. 
But there are times where the law is very clear, and a client will say, well, I want to write off X, and I'll say, well, you can't, but I don't leave it at that. I tell them, why not? Look, there's this code section or this regulation or this case, and it explicitly says you cannot do this. So if you try to do this on your return, you're asking for big penalties. Uh, but if the accountant can't tell you why explicitly, you need to be suspicious. If they say it's a red flag, that's a fancy way of saying, I don't know and I don't want to do it and I'm not going to do the research. Mm-hmm. It's a red flag. That, that's just not an acceptable answer. Then you need to have a specific answer as to why you can't write a thing off. I don't like accountants whose attitude is, show me where the law permits it and I will do it. I much prefer the attitude, and it's my attitude. Show me where the law prohibits it, otherwise I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Let's see what we've what we've learned today so far is that although asset protection is important, it's not the be all and end all. That there are other things that that you may not have heard uh, that are more along the lines of keeping you from getting sued in the first place, because the asset protection is just the final piece of the armor. That if you get sued, you don't get that that badly damaged. We've heard that LLCs are generally the best for properties you're going to hold. S-corporations are generally the best for properties that you're going to flip. That um, if you're a dealer, be a dealer. And that um, basically a lot of the stuff that's being set out there to real estate investors and, and folks who maybe don't go to RIA groups or go to seminars and things, don't realize how many people there are out there sort of pitching these big overblown buy my course and then set up 900 layers of asset protection and you will never ever be hurt or sued. Um, that a lot of that is is made to sell courses more than it is really to made to protect your assets. I would definitely agree with that. And again, and we're not saying don't use entities. But I wouldn't spend 90% of your asset protection time and money focused on entities, which is what most investors do. You might spend 20% of your asset protection time on that and look at other items. On the dealer issue, if it's, if it's murky and gray, let's be aggressive, right? If you sold three properties this year and two properties last year, we have a very strong argument that you're not a dealer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you sold 20 properties this year and 15 last year, we don't have such a good argument. You have a you have a trend of buying and selling properties. So it's it's going to be one of those things you kind of know it when you see it. John, thank you so much for being with us today and once again we want to invite people to come to the Real Estate Investors Association meeting in Cincinnati tomorrow night that's Thursday night at the CAC building. More information at cincinnatiria.com or 513-292-RIA. For more information about our show last week on House Resolution 1728 Go to relegislativeissues.com. That is National RIA's site to put all that information together. You can get everything from a copy of the show to uh, letters to send to your senator there. That's relegislativeissues.com. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.